I'm going to ask um, if you would either turn or scroll to Psalm 15 this morning. Uh, it is a fairly brief psalm that is going to be the source of our uh, uh, kind of the jumping off point for uh, the things that I would like to share with you in, in our time together. And you can follow along as I read through Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Just bow with me one more time for prayer. Our fathers, we approach your word this morning. I acknowledge before you and before these people that I am a feeble man and apart from your spirit's help there cannot be anything of eternal value that would happen here this morning and so we we collectively yield ourselves to you today that you would impart grace that you would give help and that you would cause your word to bear fruit in all of our lives today. For the sake of the name of your Son, we ask this. Amen. I, I want to give you a scenario involving uh, a farmer. As I said, Judy and I live in western Michigan in a very rural area. Our home is surrounded by uh, large farms, not not. I mean, we're talking many hundreds of acre farms. Uh, we know all about corn harvesting and potato harvesting and soybean harvesting because that goes on all around uh, where we live. Um, and so this particular farmer that I would like to talk to you about this morning had a decision. Uh, and it involved the fact that he was getting to ready to retire, uh, an older man, he was in his last season of farming and he was going to uh, sell the farm uh, along with uh, equipment that he wanted to dispose of. And so in June of this specific year, uh, an individual came to him knowing that he was getting ready to retire, knowing that he was going to sell off equipment, a man came to him and wanted a specific piece of equipment from his farm and said, I'm willing to offer you 10 grand for that certain item uh, that, that you're going to be getting rid of. And he said, I will, uh, I'll pay you, uh, you know, when I pick it up in September when you're all done with it. And so this farmer verbally agreed to those conditions. He said, yeah, I'd be willing to take $10,000 for that particular item and 
You come get it at the end of September. No paperwork was signed. They didn't shake hands. They didn't even pinky swear. They just agreed. Well, in August, about seven weeks later, a third individual came to the farm. He had found out this guy was retiring and, and he wanted that same piece of equipment and he said to the farmer, I- I'll tell you what, I'll give you $17,000 cash right now for that piece of equipment and I'm willing to wait till you're done with it, but I'll, I'll pay you for it right now. Full, full, full amount, I can give you $17,000 cash. So right in that moment, that particular farmer had a decision to make, didn't he? See, he'd already promised it to somebody else for $10,000. And now this guy's got an envelope with $17,000 cash sitting right there. There it is. What does he do? Does he honor his original agreement with the the first person who would come and give up $7,000 in lost opportunity? Or does he break his word and take the envelope that's sitting there right now and tell the other guy he's out of luck? Now, I have two questions I want you to think about. Number one, if you were that farmer... What would you do? What, would, what choice would you make? And the second question that I want to ask you is this. Does God have anything to say about this decision? Is God concerned or interested? Does God have a vested interest in how this farmer decides between these two offers. Well, as it turns out, God does have something to say about this, and it's within the text that we want to look at this morning. God gives us principles of how he wants us to live our lives, how he wants us to make decisions. And so in Psalm 15, uh, we have a little bit of, uh, of some structure here that I would like to just talk to you about for a second. Verse 1 says, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? We can, we can rephrase that by saying, Oh Lord, who's qualified to live in your presence? Who, who gets to live with you forever? That's another way of, of saying what those two verses are. Who gets to live with you forever? And then David, the author of this psalm, goes on and he, and he lists 11 items. He, he lists out 11 uh, qualities, characteristics, behaviors that are associated with the person who can dwell with God forever. And now, before we go too far with this, um, if, if you're here this morning, let me just go down a side road for a minute. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, then 
then I'm bringing you to a well and I'm handing you a cup and, and giving you an opportunity to drink. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then the things that I'm about to share with you are like bringing you to a well and letting you look in, but not giving you anything to drink with. You, you get to look at the water. You get to anticipate what it might be like to drink it. But this message won't apply to you. You see, because, because these characteristics that we're going to look at here, they, they don't really represent what it takes to enter into a relationship with God. These aren't a list of items that we do to attain this thing of living with God eternally. That, that's not what this is. What these represent are some of the ground rules for people who are already in the family of God. I, I grew up in the Davis family. Um, within the Davis family, there were ground rules. I want to tell you. <laughs> some of you, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Within your home, within your family, there's ground rules. There's... And none of those ground rules of how you live and do life within your family have anything to do with how you got into that family. They weren't the behaviors that you practiced to get into the family. You see, you understand? But, but the ground rules represent, this is how we do life together. This is what helps us live together in a way that's meaningful, organized, joyful, pleasant and and provides an environment for nurturing and growth and so if you're not a follower of Jesus uh, what I need to tell you is that coming into the family has to do with faith and has to do with recognizing uh, the, the need for forgiveness of sins and, and those are things that we could talk about outside of this time. But these 11 things are ground rules for the family. And so for those of us who are in the family of God, that's what's represented here this morning. Now, within these 11 things, these 11 items, there are three of particular importance to us with regard to this decision that this, this farmer had before him. Number one is in verse two. He who walks with integrity. That's the first one I want to point. So, so of these 11, I'm only going to talk about three. He who walks with integrity. Now what is integrity? The word integrity means being whole, being complete, being without fracture or fragmentation, it, it derives from the same word as the word integer. And an integer is what kind of a number? A whole number. No decimals, no fractions, a whole number. Wholeness 
with regard to integrity means a person whose character is the same all the way through. That means their character is always the same regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. You can move from this environment to this environment to this environment to this environment and that person's character remains the same. It doesn't change. That's what integrity means, wholeness. The second one I want to point out is in verse, also in verse 2, that this person speaks truth in the heart. So not just integrity, but a person who speaks truth in the heart. That means inside. Now, now the Bible talks about truth literally hundreds and hundreds of times. In fact, just in the Gospel of John, we have verses like, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and, you know the verse, full of grace and truth. Chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in, you're seeing a pattern develop here. Jesus said, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. My testimony is true. My judgment is true. Uh, John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, John 15, 1, I am the true vine. In chapter 17, Jesus prays and he says, uh, prays that you and I would be sanctified in the truth of the word of God. Three times Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. So, so these are just ten examples out of dozens of examples just in the Gospel of John about the word of Truth. So why is truth important to God? Why, why, does, why does God, within his word, bring up this idea of truth? Well, truth is that which is in accordance with reality. That's what truth is. That which is in accordance with reality. Ignoring reality by trying to make up our own truth results in discord and anarchy. And so, truth in our culture is becoming lost. The idea of having an objective truth that is that represents a reality irrespective of our feelings is a cursed idea in our culture i have i have observed and heard the people who say well that's true for you but it's not true for me maybe you've heard people say that that's true for you but it's not true for me 
suggesting the idea that you can have your truth and I can have my truth and they can be different. And God says, no, there's, there's in fact a reality. There are, there are realities that God has established and they function whether you choose to believe in them or not. You can say, I do not believe in the law of gravity. It doesn't exist. That's my truth. There's no such thing as the law of gravity. See what I mean? And you go up on top of a 10-story building and say, I don't believe in gravity. And step off. And what is gravity going to do? It's going to disprove your idea of what's real. It's going to demonstrate to you that your idea of truth is not real. It, it's, it's false. So, Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew chapter 12. The mouth speaks out of what is on the inside, what is in, inside of us. And so, within Psalm 15, we're told that the person who is within God's family needs to speak truth inside of themselves and not try to be absorbed with ideas of other people's truth that are false, that don't represent what reality is. Truth is not a means to an end. Truth is not something that we use when it is for our, our, our advantage and then abandon it when it's not for our advantage. Truth is the reality of how God who created the universe that we dwell in and who created us. Truth is about how he has made us to fit into this universe and how he has made us to fit into relationship with him. The enemy is the one who hates that idea. The enemy is the one who wants us to believe something other than that. And will try to tell us that, no, there's not two genders, there's dozens of genders. Well, see, there's a falseness to that idea that comes from the pit of hell. And, and there's the temptation to, in order to uh, appease how those people think about that, their definition of truth, to kind of go along with it and say, well, yeah, I, I can use your pronouns because those are your truth. And yet, we're told here that part of the ground rules for God's family is that, no, 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 no. The reality of how I've made the universe that we live in 
is not represented at all by those ideas. It's just not another choice that we can make to say, oh, here's, a, here's another way that we can live life. It's kind of like saying, I can live life by not believing in gravity. I can pretend it doesn't exist. I can go about my life and, and just ignore gravity. We see the folly of this idea when we put it into that context. And we say, how foolish to think that gravity doesn't exist, to go up on top of a 10-story building and, and step off. And we can see in the physical realm how stupid that idea is. And we're going to try to run to that person and pull them back away from the ledge and say, no, no, this, it's, it's, it's not like that. See this rock? Here. That's what's going to happen to you if you step off that ledge. We, we recognize that. And now all we need to do is transfer that from the physical realm to the spiritual realm with the exact same conviction. Speaking truth in our hearts. The truth of what? The truth of God. God has arranged the universe and our relationship with him. He's the designer. He's the creator. He's the one who's made all of this. We don't get to change how he's made it. We don't get to do that. But the enemy will try to do that because the enemy hates God and he hates those who love God. The third item that I want to point out in Psalm 15 is in verse 4. The person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Words are extremely powerful. Words create reality. They can certainly, they can certainly describe reality, but words also create reality. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord said, let there be light. He spoke the light into existence. Through the word, God created reality. And we are made in the image of God. And through our words, we can create reality. Not just describe it, we can create it. Now what reality am I talking about? I want you to think about that. What, what do you mean, Roger? Can you just say, hey, let there be a glass of water? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, don't, I can't create physically the way God can create. But it is within my capacity to create my character. I, through my words, am responsible for the formation of my character. Did you know that? By the words we choose, we frame, we design, and we fill out our own characters. 
Words are powerful. So, truth and integrity, we need to, we need to move those from ideas into, into reality of conviction and, and action. All right, now, <clears throat> Scripture's not only full of principles. Th- these are principles. They're kind of ideas. Scripture also gives us examples of how these things live out. And so here we have the principle that truth is important to God and integrity is important to God, but can we see this actually lived out somewhere? I mean, because this farmer is still sitting here and he needs to make a decision, okay? So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9. The story of the Gibeonites. Now, um, just uh, by way of a little background here, um, the nation of Israel had followed Moses through the wilderness for 40 years. They, uh, They trekked around the wilderness and then Moses died and Joshua brought them across the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, and they were instructed by God to subdue the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and to dwell in that land. They were instructed to conquer the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were instructed to to kill them. As they're doing this, as they're moving through the land of Canaan, and and as they had come through the wilderness, there's this one group of people who observed the reputation of the Israelites and realized that they didn't have a chance against this human juggernaut that God was blessing. And so rather than fight the Israelites, they decided to do something a little differently. Joshua chapter 9. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and... Excuse me. And all the coast of the great sea toward uh, Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. When they heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with the Israelites. But... But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done, they took a different tack. Verse 4, they acted craftily and set out his envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves and all their bread and their provision were, of, of their provision was dry and crumbled. They went to Joshua, to the camp, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a very far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you're living within our land. How shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, Well, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said, 
We've come from a very far land because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we heard the report of all that God did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Verse 11. So the elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, We're your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. And this our bread was warm when we took it for our provision. But now you see it's all dry and crumbled. And these wineskins were brand new when we left, but now they're torn. And these clothes, they were, they were fresh when we put them on, but now they're all worn out because our journey was very long. So the men of Israel took the provisions and they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with the Gibeonites and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Wow. So Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites because they're crafty. And there are two problems with this covenant. Number one, it's against God's law. Deuteronomy 7 says very clearly, when you go into the land, I want you to conquer the people and do not make any covenant with them. No covenants. It's specific. It's not implied. It is explicit. Zero covenants. Don't do it. So there's a problem. The second problem is this covenant that they do make is under false pretenses. I mean, they're lying. <laughs> they are just flat lying through their teeth. I mean, there's nothing truthful about this at all. In fact, the Gibeonites are only about between six and ten miles from where Joshua and his army were camped. I mean, they're just right up the road. They're right up the road. Oh, we've come from so very far away. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, this covenant, just based on these two things, should be absolutely null and void. Okay, let's see how this plays out. Verse 16. It came about at the end of three days, after they had made the covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors, that they were living within the land. And so the sons of Israel set out, and they came to their cities, and now their cities were Gibeon and Shepherah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. Well, first of all, who knew spiritual leaders could make mistakes? Really, right? And furthermore, who knew the congregation could grumble against the leaders? As a, as a pretty new Christian, within, I, I remember reading this within my first two years of being a believer, a, a new follower of Jesus, and I read this story, and I was convinced that the leaders had every right to void this contract, this covenant, that... that 
that the congregation was right, off with their heads. You know, that, that's, that's kind of how I looked at this. This is a mess. These guys are, there's a lot of problems here. I was with the congregation. But the spiritual leaders here, Joshua, the other elders of the nation of Israel, they maintained their conviction that the covenant was valid, that it could not be revoked. So here, on one hand, we have the opinion of the, the congregation off with their heads. And on the other hand, we have the opinion of the spiritual leaders. No, no, we've given our word to them. We cannot go back on what we said. Now, there's one opinion that doesn't show up in here. Whose? God's opinion doesn't show up right here. God does not weigh in on this at all right here. There's no statement from the Lord as to how to proceed. Nothing. The priests don't come and they don't use the Urim and the Thummim. And they, they, God does not weigh in on this. Not right now. But, but, 300 years later, three, listen to me, 300 years later, the United States isn't even 300 years old. Okay? 300 years after this covenant is made, God weighs in on this. So 300 years later, Saul is the king. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. A lot of water has gone under the bridge. A lot of things have happened over 300 years. The Gibeonites have been hewers of wood and drawers of water over 300 years. They've been servants of the Israelites, subjected to them. And now, 300 years later, <clears throat> in chapter 21, we get this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. What? For some reason that we are not told, King Saul hated the Gibeonites. Now, he had a run-in with them at some point, and he had, he had bad feeling toward them, and he started killing off the Gibeonites. He started committing genocide. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them, King David. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel had made a covenant with them. That's what we just talked about. 
But Saul had sought to kill them off in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you, and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? You see, see when God watched Saul starting to slaughter off the Gibeonites, Saul was breaking the covenant that Joshua had made 300 years prior. Do you get this? Nothing has been said about a single Gibeonite for 300 years. And all of a sudden, Saul raises his hand against them and God brings his hand down and says no. And he brings a famine on the land. He says, what you're doing is wrong. You're dishonoring the covenant that you made with those people 300 years ago. The covenant that was against my law. The covenant that was made on false pretenses. You are violating that covenant and I'm holding you responsible for your word. Your vow, your promise, your oath, the thing that you spoke to those Gibeonites, I am holding you responsible for it regardless of the circumstances of how it was made. I am holding you accountable for breaking your word. This, when I finally got to this, in my Bible reading, it, it crushed me. And I realized how wrong I was and how wrong the congregation of the Israelites were when they said, off with their heads. And how right the spiritual leaders had been who said, no, we have made a promise to them and we cannot go back on our word. Do you see that? Do you understand the severity of this? Our words create reality. Not just describe it, they create reality. When you and I speak, we are creating reality. Now, God's opinion on that covenant from 300 years before is finally coming to the surface. All right, well, let's kind of wrap this up. When we looked at those 11 truths, we talked about integrity speaking truth in the heart and and swearing, giving an oath to one's own hurt and not going back, not changing our minds. Have you ever told someone that you would do something but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you get an invitation to do something. 
And you think, yeah, that, I, I don't have anything better to do. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll do that unless a better offer, and see in the back of your mind, unless a better offer comes along. Uh, I, I can tell you about a pastor I know. And one Saturday night, he got a phone call from an adult Sunday school teacher. And the adult Sunday school teacher said, I just got invited to a playoff game at Gillette Stadium tomorrow. I can't be at Sunday school tomorrow. Sorry. But, but wait a minute, you, you gave your word. You, you, you made a promise. You told me that you would be there. Yeah, but I got a better offer, Pastor. I'm going to the playoff game at Gillette Stadium. Ah. Ah. Was that a better offer? Or was that a opportunity to demonstrate integrity and not going back on your word. See, because when we speak, God remembers. He remembers that that Sunday school teacher said, I'll, I'll be there to teach. He remembers that. If he can remember a covenant for 300 years, he can certainly remember a uh, a commitment that's a couple weeks old. Let's go back to our farmer. $17,000 sitting on the table. Man, that extra seven grand could sure come in handy. So, expedience says... I'll take the seven grand. What does integrity say? Integrity says, I'm sorry. I've already committed this to somebody else before you. And I can't take your money. See the difference? Integrity says, I will uphold the promise that I made to my own, at least on the surface, hurt. It appears on the surface that I'm giving up something. That I'm giving up seven grand because I'm going to keep my promise. But see, God doesn't see it that way. Because who's the person that, who is the person that God blesses? <laughs> see, now we take this to another level. God blesses the person who says, no, I'm a man of my word. I keep my word. We didn't shake. We didn't sign anything. We didn't pinky swear. I gave you my word, and I'm going to keep my word. Because my word is worth more than $7,000. My word should be worth more than tickets to a playoff game at Gillette Stadium. You see?
There's another covenant. that we're all familiar with, at least 90% of us in this room are. It's the covenant that's made in the warmth and joy and excitement of, of new love. It's a covenant in which we use words like for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, right? That's a covenant. It's a promise. It's an oath. And when worse comes and hard things are there, we wonder if perhaps it might be better to leave the covenant behind and, and look for greener pastures, so to speak. And God says, wait a minute. I, I remember that you made a covenant. You made a promise. You made an oath. I remember that. I was there. I, I don't forget that. And, and I will bless you for honoring your covenant. I will bless you for honoring your covenant. And God will bless that farmer for honoring his word. And God will bless that Sunday school teacher who says, no, my word is more important than tickets to a playoff game at Gillette Stadium. God will bless the choices that we make that forge our character within us. That's what God does. God never forgets our words. We need to be people who choose them very carefully. Not haphazardly, not randomly, not expediently, but with care and with conviction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have revealed to us the solemn nature of our words. We know the power of your words, but Lord, now you've revealed to us the power of our own words. That a word even carelessly spoken can be powerful and can create a reality that we did not intend. We ask you, please, to help us to be people of our word, people of integrity, people who speak truth in our hearts, people who will not trade godly character for money or pleasure or power. And Lord, in the week ahead, we would also like to ask you for an opportunity to practice this. We, we know the idea, but Lord, we need to put it to work. And so we'd ask you to appoint circumstances in our lives whereby we have the opportunity to choose integrity over expedience so that the character of Christ can be formed in us. Help us to glorify Jesus in the decisions that we make. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.